Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 736 for the 26th of March, 2021. This week, if your car doesn't have a dash cam, maybe it's time to add one. Even good models are reasonably priced now, so let's consider which features to look for. In short circuits, do you need a $6,000 camera that takes only monochrome images and doesn't even have a zoom lens? Quick answer, maybe, but only if you know why you need it. Large trade shows had been in trouble since 9-11 and the travel restrictions that followed, and just as they were beginning to recover, COVID came along. Virtual shows don't provide all the benefits of in-person events, though. In spare parts, only on the website, now there's a new threat to security, smart sex toys. There's a story I didn't see coming, but security vendor ESET says it really is a thing iPad users just got access to the all-in-one Microsoft Office app that includes the ability to create and edit Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF documents, even for users who don't have an Office 365 subscription. And 20 years ago, the dot-com disaster was well underway, but most people hadn't even noticed. I bought a dash cam about two years ago. It seemed like a good idea at the time, and I found a model with acceptable resolution at a reasonable price. The goal for the camera is to be an objective witness in the event of a collision, but I have used it for other purposes. Two years ago, the Rove R2 dash cam with 4K video resolution cost a little over $100. The model is still available today, selling for less than $80. You can pay more than $1,000 for a dash cam, or less than $60. In researching a purchase such as this, I usually eliminate the lowest-priced choices because they often are made by companies I've never heard of, and the specifications are disappointing at best. Then I start by eliminating from the other end. The highest-priced items often include features I will never need or use, so a reasonable range for dash cams today is well, maybe $100 to $200. I found about 20 dash cams in that range, and if I was in the market for a new unit, those are the ones I would inspect most closely. Some features are simply must-have items, and I'd rule out any dash cam that has deficient specifications or omits any of these following features. Automatic recording and loop recording. Most dash cams offer these features, so just simply scratch any that don't off your shortlist. The dash cam should turn itself on when you start the car and turn itself off when you exit the vehicle. Saving money by choosing a dash cam that you have to remember to turn on is false economy. Also, the dash cam should have a feature that keeps it from shutting off if the memory card is full. Loop recording allows the camera to record continuously by recording over the oldest tracks. Buying a large SD card to go with the camera is wise, too, because a larger card means old videos will be retained longer. 
Next, look for video locking. Even with a large memory card, all videos will eventually be overwritten. If you're in a wreck and you need the clip to establish fault, you don't want the clip to be erased. Taking the memory card out and downloading the video to a computer is the best way to ensure it isn't overwritten, but being able to lock the clip until you're able to download it is definitely helpful. Also, look at video quality. If the image quality isn't sufficient to record license plate numbers and other small details, it won't be very useful. You'll find some dash cameras that record only at VGA resolution. That's 640 by 480 pixels. The best quality available now is ultra-high definition, or UHD. That's 3840 by 2160 pixels. Most cameras that claim 4K are actually UHD devices. The 4K spec calls for more pixels, up to 4096 by 2160. But the real difference is how images are encoded and the color depth of the images. For usable videos, stick to devices that deliver at least 1080p quality. That's high definition, 1920 by 1080. A better choice would be 2K, 2560 by 1440. A dash cam that offers high dynamic range recording will preserve detail in high contrast images, such as driving toward a sunrise or sunset and nighttime driving. And that leads to night video quality. Recording at night is more difficult than recording during the day. Some dash cams have an option to detect and record collisions when a car is parked. If you use that feature, night recording quality is essential because the vehicle may be parked in a dark area. Take a look at the lens, too. The dash cam video needs to show as much as it can to document a collision. Some low-price units have a narrow angle of view that shows only what's directly in front of the vehicle. Select a unit that has at least a 120-degree view, and 150 degrees is better. A few units capture a full 180-degree view. The recording rate is less important, but take a look at it. Choose a dash cam that captures at least 30 frames per second. Low-end units might not do this. A unit that records at 60 frames per second will provide smoother videos, but the price will be higher and the memory card will fill faster. I consider GPS and timestamps to be important. Many dash cams do have GPS built in. It's useful as proof of your speed at the time of an accident, and it can also be helpful if you're issued a speeding ticket when you weren't speeding. The video should also show the date and time. And the screen. Some people consider a screen to be optional. Without a screen, you have to guess what the camera is seeing. Having a screen, whether you have it turned on all the time or not, does at least make it possible to check the operation regularly. The screen should also display a recording indicator and show the vehicle's speed. There are some other features to consider. Some dash cams record the front view and rear view, front view and interior view, or all three. The rear view can be helpful if your vehicle is rear-ended by showing clearly that the at-fault driver was distracted, for example. The rear-view camera will need to be connected to the main unit and have a power source. If you're not able to do that work yourself, you'll need to hire someone to install the rear camera. Units that offer interior view have a rear-facing camera on the dash cam. This may limit where it can be installed. Adding more video streams also means the memory card will fill faster, so multi-view dash cams should have higher capacity memory cards. 
The cabin view can also be used to monitor the driver, and some parents might consider that feature to be very useful to keep an eye on new drivers. A few devices can accept video feeds for more than just a single add-on camera. You can install left and right views in addition to front and rear views. A setup such as this will probably require professional installation, and it will very quickly consume space on the memory card. Voice control is being added to some new models to provide easier and safer hands-off control while driving. Some units issue alerts if the car seems to be drifting out of its lane and in stopped traffic when surrounding traffic begins to move. Parking mode might help to identify a person who hits your vehicle while it's parked. It can't capture the collision itself, but it will wake up and record everything that it sees for a short period and then shut off. If this mode is enabled, the dash cam should tell you the next time you use it that that mode was needed. Wi-Fi capability can connect your smartphone to the dash cam. If you witness a crash and wait for police to arrive, or if you're involved in a crash, being able to show the video on a screen larger than the one on the dash cam will help. You may also be able to upload videos directly to the cloud using your phone. Data charges may, of course, apply in that case. Many dash cams have a button that captures a still image. This can be used to grab photos following a collision, but you probably have a smartphone that'll do a better job. My dash cam has what is probably a capacitor instead of a battery, so it's not intended to be used to operate the device, only to provide enough time to finish writing files when the car is turned off. When detached from its power source in the car, the dash cam will operate for less than a minute. If you do want the ability to record for a longer period after the camera has been disconnected, look for one with a fairly large internal battery. This will also give the camera the ability to continue recording if it has been disconnected from the power source in a crash. Dash cams come in two general shapes, squarish and longish. Units with a camera that captures the cabin view are usually longish. Most of the others are squarish. Sorry for those highly technical terms. The larger the dash cam, the more it will block the driver's view. This is less important if there is no interior view option on the camera, because then the camera could be mounted behind the mirror. But if the unit does have a screen, that would hide the dash cam's screen from the driver. Another option would involve buying a separate mount to position the drive on the dashboard instead of on the windshield. From my perspective, though, mounting fairly high on the windshield seems to provide the best view. And I mentioned using a dash cam for other purposes. Maybe you'd like to know what that was all about. My high school class had planned a reunion in 2020, one that was eventually canceled because of the COVID pandemic. In May of 2019, I drove to town so I could get some current photographs. When I got home, it occurred to me that some people who live far from the old hometown might like to drive around with me virtually. The video I created started in the Columbus area, showed a compressed version of the drive to Bell Fountain, and then some street scenes around town. So dash cams can be helpful, even when there's no crash. And if you'd like to see that video, warning here, it is 28 minutes long, you'll find it on YouTube. There's a link to the YouTube video on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, 
and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, Leica's $6,000 Q2 monochrome digital camera captures 47 megabyte raw images. There's also a Q2 digital camera that costs $1,000 less. What's the difference? Why should you care? And do you need one? The Q2, according to Leica, is an advanced compact camera characterized by its updated sensor design and intuitive operation. The camera comes with a single prime 28mm lens and a full-frame sensor. No zoom, no interchangeable lenses, but the extreme resolution of 8,368 pixels by 5,584 pixels does allow digital crop to simulate working with longer focal length lenses. Do you need a camera? And what's the difference between the Q2 and the Q2 monochrome? Well, let's answer the second part first. The Q2 captures images in color. For $1,000 more, you can have the Q2 monochrome, which, as the name implies, captures only monochrome images. $1,000 more for what seems like less? The Q2 monochrome's specialized sensor omits the color filter array so that it captures only luminance values. As for whether you need it, probably not. Many decades ago, I hung around with the owners of a camera store, and I often heard jokes about doctors who bought the best camera they could find. In those days, that would have been a Hasselblad camera that used size 120 roll film. The problem was that Hasselblad assumed those who bought their cameras would understand the relationship between a lens's f-stop and the shutter speed. Hasselblad also assumed that users would know when to use 100-speed film and when to use 400-speed film. The doctors, who may have been medical specialists and very good at what they did, didn't have a clue when it came to f-stops and shutter speeds. No doubt the Leica Q2 monochrome is a marvelous camera, but $6,000 is a lot to pay for a camera that can produce only black-and-white photos and that doesn't allow the user to mount another lens. For one-sixth the price of the Q2 monochrome, you can buy a high-end point-and-shoot camera that won't have the extreme resolution of the Q2 monochrome and will create images with more noise than the Q2 monochrome, but it will capture images in color or black and white, will come with a zoom lens, and maybe even the possibility of installing a separate lens. It all comes down to this. The best camera in the world is the one you have in your hand when you need it even if that camera is the one in your smartphone. It's not the camera that makes the photograph. It's the photographer. Every now and then I think about PC Expo. PC Expo filled New York's Javits Convention Center, top to bottom, north to south, every year through the 1990s. Then came the 9-11 attacks, travel restrictions, and the dot-com implosion. The feeble 2003 Expo, which was called TechX by then, led the collapse of big shows. Nearly 20 years later, as some events were beginning to show signs of life, the COVID pandemic arrived. 
For the first time in history, the 2021 Consumer Electronics Show was fully online and was widely panned. Adobe's annual Max conference attracted a huge worldwide audience, far larger than any in-person conference could ever hope for, but the excitement of the big crowds was missing. And this year's South by Southwest conference in Austin was a fully virtual event. Consumer Electronics Show organizers charged those who registered early $100 for this year's virtual-only event, $300 for those who registered later. This year's virtual Adobe Max was open to anybody without charge. Last year's South by Southwest event was canceled abruptly. This year, organizers charged $325. Large in-person conferences usually have price tags over $1,000, and that's in addition to the cost of traveling to the event's location, ground transportation when you're there, lodging, and all the other expenses involved. So the fees for a virtual conference seem like bargains, but are they? A major challenge for virtual conferences is that people are still in their homes or offices with all the usual interruptions of the home or office. Those who think they can multitask while watching a presentation, or those who are forced to multitask, will miss important information. So there's a value in attending in person when that becomes possible again, because attendees have opportunities to meet each other. Virtual conferences may give attendees close-up views of the presenters, but they make it nearly impossible to interact with them. Marketplace, a radio program that's distributed by American Public Media, recently examined the value of virtual programs, specifically South by Southwest. You can read the report or listen to it on the Marketplace website, and there's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. We can hope that the COVID pandemic continues to fade and that large events such as Adobe Max, South by Southwest, and the Consumer Electronics Show will be able to resume in-person sessions this year or in 2022. Even those of us who attend virtually will find the online sessions more compelling by virtue of the in-person attendees. It doesn't cost $1,000 or even $1 to get into spare parts. Just visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Now there's a new threat to security, smart sex toys. There's a story I didn't see coming, but security vendor ESET says it really is a thing iPad users just got access to the all-in-one Microsoft Office app that includes the ability to create and edit Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF documents, even for users who don't have an Office 365 subscription. And 20 years ago, the dot-com disaster was well underway, but most people hadn't even noticed. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.